I've been reminded at this coffee break that I never finished that story. So I'm sorry about that. That was so. That was you know an ad, one of these things that came to me, and uh, that's when I get into some trouble. But I will finish the story. So uh, the rabbi said, "Look, how in the world can Jesus of Nazareth uh, fulfill the prophecy of Daniel chapter nine?" And uh, Professor Weingarten uh, patiently um, uh, identified the various uh, edicts, that is, the Cyrus, and then the second one was Darius. Darius around 520 B.C., which really was simply a reaffirmation of the Cyrus 539, and then the Artaxerxes of 457, and then patiently charted out how after 49 years, according to Daniel prophecy, the walls of Jerusalem were actually rebuilt, and then after this period of time ending with 26 A.D., uh, uh, that's the very year in which Jesus of Nazareth began his public ministry, And then it goes on to say that in the middle of the last seven-year period, a Messiah shall be cut off, and it's precisely in the middle, about the year 30 A.D., that Jesus was crucified. And then it says that for three and a half years, the last three and a half years, the covenant will be confirmed among the nations. And he showed how uh, the gospel went from Pentecost, and within three and a half years, sure enough, it reached all the civilized nations of the, of the Roman Empire. And the rabbi uh, didn't say much, but about uh, oh, three or four weeks later, Dr. Weingarten met a, a member of this rabbi's congregation. And he just said some lighthearted things, and he said, how's rabbi, I forget his name, so-and-so. And they said, oh, we don't know where rabbi so-and-so is. He just seemed to disappear. He resigned and disappeared, and the last we heard, he's living in Mexico someplace. And Dr. Weingarten uh, theorized that he was so impressed with how Jesus fulfilled the Daniel 9 prophecy that he simply didn't dare go back to his congregation anymore, and he sort of just withdrew from, from the Rabinette. Is that how it's called? So I thought that would be a very interesting... And that's where I learned about the structure of the 70 weeks of Daniel, chapter 9. And I'm thankful that someone asked this uh, question because I didn't want to uh, have you confuse the Cyrus edict with the later Artaxerxes edict, which actually allowed the rebuilding of the walls. And incidentally, it's the Cyrus Edict that has been discovered by archaeologists, the actual clay tablet with partially written and not the uh, Artaxerxes Edict. Which brings us to Zechariah chapter 1. Pardon? Someone said finally? Okay, but we still have five sessions together for uh, Zechariah. Uh, Maybe this is a good time to pause because uh, ask one or two questions uh, up till this point because now this is really a kind of a juncture point in our treatments this week. Uh, Yes, George? Today is John Calvin's birthday? Oh, how old is he? Huh? Okay. 
Well, listen, that would make, uh, this is, uh, I better not do any, any tabulating in my, in my mind just now. But he was born in 1509. So some of you mathematically inclined people can quickly uh, tell us how old he would have been uh, had he not uh, died. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's it for today? Okay, all right, fine. Zechariah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to try to take these uh, one chapter a day, except that tomorrow we'll probably cover three, and then we'll be caught up, see? And then again, I may have to let you go home and study the sixth chapter on your own if we don't. Okay, Zechariah has eight visions. And all the visions grouped together have one general emphasis. And that emphasis is the role that Israel will continue to play as God's agents through whom the Savior of the world would come. Really, that's the primary reason for the existence of the covenant community in the Old Testament. They were the God-selected, chosen people through whom the Savior of the world would, be, would, would eventually come. So they were God's agents of redemption. And in order to do this, of course, Jerusalem had to be resettled, rebuilt. The temple had to be rebuilt. And that's what Zechariah is telling us about. So, the theme of the first six chapters, these visions, eight visions in all, is God's plan for the ages will be accomplished. Let's read verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, that's 520 B.C. We can be very, very exact on these because the Persians kept very good records. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. Uh, what, what kind of um, means or manner is that for revelation? The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Unspecified, okay. That's a kind of a catch category. We simply don't know in, in this initial uh, revelation how this word came to him. Now, here's the word, the actual word from the Lord. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Those are the pre-exilic people, right? The people before the exile. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. In other words... This is a call to reaffirmation of the covenant relationship. Not a new covenant. No, it's one covenant, God and his people. But the people had to be disciplined because they were covenant breakers. And now the Lord says, let's get back together. Let's be reconciled. Let's be reunited in our covenant commitment to each other. Now, do not be like your forefathers. Learn from their past mistakes. Do not be like your forefathers 
to whom the earlier prophets prophesied. The earlier prophets proclaimed. Now, who are the earlier prophets? A little louder, please. <laughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah was one of the last earliers, just before the exile. Hosea, Amos, and they all had the same theme, didn't they? They all, they all kept reminding the people who God was. They all reminded the people who they were. God's chosen agents for his fulfillment of his purposes in the world. They all reminded them what the results of obedience would be. Prosperity, uh, a purposeful life lived in God's presence. And they all reminded the people what the consequences of disobedience would be. You know, if you take those four, of course it's in the prophetic uh, chapter in, in, in the book, uh, take those four. You can group everything that the prophets wrote under those four headings. The content of all the prophets. They kept reminding the people who God was. The sovereign Lord. The God of the, of the covenant. The faithful one. The creator of the ends of the earth. Their heavenly husband. They all kept saying, this is who God is, the sovereign Lord. They kept saying who you are. Reminding them, you're God's people. You're God's um, covenant vowed wife <laughs> called to loyalty to your God. And, that's, and therefore, they went on to say, this is what's expecting, expected of you. Thirdly, all the prophets warned them of the evil consequences of disobedience, of breaking covenant with God, and they all reminded them, there's always a hope in every prophecy. There's always, uh, every one of the prophets, always hope they all reminded them of what the great consequences of obedience would be. So, Zechariah brings this word from the Lord to the people and says, Don't be like your forefathers. I think both things can be said, of course. There were always a few faithful people, a faithful remnant. But, um, you know, if we look in the history of the church, too, we shouldn't be like those bad tendencies that kept cropping up in the history of the church to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. Now, this is what the earlier prophets proclaimed. You've got to distinguish what he's saying to the present people and what the earlier prophets proclaimed. He said, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, quote, this, we would say, quote, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and from your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So the Lord says, this is what I said to your forefathers. Return to me from your evil ways, your evil practices. And then concludes, that's unquote, and then says, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And now verse 5. I want to uh, pause here for a little bit because it's so full of uh, a warning as well as hope. Uh, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now listen. Where are your forefathers now? Well, you know where they are. And the prophets, do they live forever? So he's talking about the forefathers and the early prophets. Do they live forever? They're both dead. See? But 
Did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Catch up with them? Then they repented. Now, this is the, not talking about the forefathers, this is a new paragraph. Then the people to whom Zechariah is preaching, of them it is said, then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserved, just as he determined to do. Let's look at those six verses uh, a little more carefully with some uh, comment in the process. Uh, These six verses really constitute the introductory admonition for the whole book, really. Um, And uh, Zechariah, in the process, is telling them not to make, not to repeat the mistakes of their forefathers. Well, what were those mistakes? Well, essentially being unfaithful to the Lord. But the immediate forefathers, just before the exile, uh, constitute the special people who made the most horrendous mistakes. I want to you to turn to Second Chronicles 36. Uh, And we're going to look at verses 11 through 23 to give you some idea of what the forefathers were like to whom um, reference is made here in Zechariah chapter 1. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 36. I believe that's the last chapter. Verses 11 to the end of the chapter. This will set that historical framework a little more indelibly in your mind as well. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. Now, that was approximately the year uh, 609 B.C. See, those are the forefathers now. Zechariah is proclaiming his word in 520 B.C. There's roughly 89 years later. So now we're looking at the kinds of forefathers to whom reference is made in Zechariah 1 about which God is warning the people not to repeat their mistakes. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him take an oath in God's name He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of our Father, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, right there in the temple, you know, massacred these young men, these potential army conscripts. They were the first always because they were the most uh, threatening for for army military service. But also uh, young women 
old men or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple. Now, that was Solomon's temple, you know. It was, it was a building that had been built way back in 967 B.C. At least they started building. Building took years, of course, back then. And you know how, how, how adorned that was with, with the solid gold plating on every piece of furniture. Nebuchadnezzar took all the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. That's 539. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. Seventy years. It lay desolate. Now, some have uh, speculated that for many, many years, 400 and some years, the requirement to set aside the land one year out of every seven years so that the land could be revitalized was no longer practiced. And uh, so if you accumulate all those years that they failed to let the land sit idle for every seven years, uh, these 70 years, the Lord in his province makes up for it all. Now, that's an interesting theory. There, there's no particular reference except that it says here, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Now, listen. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's 539 <coughs> B.C., in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Now, this is a very abbreviated form. It's not the complete um, edict. If you turn to Ezra chapter 1, for most of you it'll be right over the page, the edict is repeated, only it's, extended and uh, in one other passage in the Bible I wrote a reference to myself somewhere uh, the it's even oh that's uh, I believe in a later chapter in Ezra it's it's almost the entire edict is is written but this is a summary in second Chronicles 37 the Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So that's the kind of context that, to which Zechariah is referring just before the exile. Don't make the mistake that your forefathers made. I want to uh, just summarize that period of history a little more here because the it does present the great providence of the Lord in working out his redemptive history so well. <clears throat> it's uh, not easy because of Nebuchadnezzar's manner of you know, getting rid of one king and replacing him with another to follow the channel. What you see in the solid line is the line of David. What you see in the light 
uh, dashes and arrow are uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, temporary replacements. Well, they, they both can claim uh, a Davidic heritage, but it's not the channel that the Lord had chosen. Now, when we read here about Zedekiah, he's the last of the kings of Judah prior to the complete collapse of Jerusalem. Uh, that's an interesting story in itself. You see, Josiah became king around uh, 640. And Josiah was a reform king, like Hezekiah before him. And it was under Josiah that the law was rediscovered in the temple. They hadn't bothered to read the law for, 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 a, for a hundred years or more. And it was discovered, and Josiah said, Hey, that's got to be the law of the land. And so he got rid of the high places and the uh, fertility cult uh, shrines under every high, on every high hill or under every green tree. Because remember, fertility cultism, the higher the hill, the closer to the gods. And under a tree, well, a tree is as close to nature, I guess, as you can get. So he got rid of them all. But tragically, when uh, his son succeeded him, his son simply reversed the whole, the whole system. Well, when, uh, so uh, when Josiah's reform movement died with him, and uh, after Josiah, now I got Zedekiah, that's quite a bit later, of course, but after Josiah we have uh, Jehoahaz, but he, was only, he only reigned for three months. And the Egyptians, who were the major competitors of the Chaldean or the Babylonians, uh, came up from the south and seized Jerusalem and captured Jehoahaz and took him off to Egypt. He was only in, in office for, uh, for three months. So he was a son of Josiah, but he reigned a very, very short time. And Jehoiakim uh, succeeded him. Now, Jehoiakim... Uh, reigned for uh, about 10 years. From about 607 to 597. And it was under Jehoiakim that the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar first uh, controlled Judea. But they didn't destroy the place. They made Jude Judah into a, into a vassal state. And a vassal state uh, would enrich the empire by exacting taxes particularly. So uh, uh, mostly in, in the ancient world, an army would come in and say, look, if you surrender peacefully and if you pay your tribute uh, faithfully, then uh, we'll protect you. It was protection money, like the mafia operates in some big cities. They go to the restaurant people and the, the bars and they say, uh, you know what? If you uh, pay us uh, a fee once a month, protection fee, then uh, we'll guarantee you protection. And if the, uh, if the entrepreneur says, well, from whom are you protecting me? They say, we're protecting you from us. You know, <laughs> that's the way the mafia operates. Well, that's old in the history of mankind. That's the way these big empires operated. They came into lesser countries and said, look, we subject you to our power and now you owe us tribute money. So every April 15, they had to collect 50 million bucks income tax and send it off to Babylon. See, 
That's literally the way it happened. And they didn't destroy Jerusalem. They took some able-bodied people, mostly the craftsmen. Now, I know the passage we read is the last stage, and then they took everybody, and they killed them and everything. But the initially, initially, 607, Judah was simply made a tribute state. And they had to pay this tribute money. And that was designed to keep the, the vassal state poor, and especially to prevent it from building a big military force because that's expensive. It's the most expensive thing in our own budget, you know. About, well, the largest single item in our national budget is the military. So, um, and, and Jehoiakim was set up by Nebuchadnezzar. He had the wisdom. He couldn't be called king anymore. They called him governor. But he was a descendant of Josiah, a descendant of the Davidic line. Nebuchadnezzar was wise enough to realize, hey, they better have this accommodation if they were going to be faithfully tribute. Well, after about hmm, eight or nine years, the advisors of Jehoiakim came to him and said, you know, boss, (laughs) you know, Mr. Governor, (laughs) um, we're such a small little state and the, the Chaldean Empire is so enormous they probably wouldn't miss our 50 million bucks. So let's quit paying tribute. And so they did. And Nebi got a word of that. Nebuchadnezzar got word of that, which he didn't like at all. So in 597, he sent his army down there to teach those Jews subordination, you know, loyalty. And he dislodged Jehoiakim from his throne carted him off to Babylon with more um, exile. So this is the second deportation. I told you there were three. The second deportation. And of course, they usually took the able-bodied, the craftsmen, the skilled people, you know, and hard carted them off to be slaves in Babylon. And he set up Jehoiachin. But Jehoiachin... Um, was uh, only uh, a governor for a matter of months again. I think it's three and a half months. And uh, for some reason or other, he was not um, appreciated by the Babylonian overlords, and they replaced him with Zedekiah, who was a brother of Josiah, a younger brother of Josiah. So you don't have a father-son here, But Zedekiah, the person we talked about here, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. It was really Nebuchadnezzar who set him up in 597 after only a very brief reign of Jehoiachin. See, I I want to clarify this because it's so confusing if you just read Chronicles. And Zedekiah began sending tribute money faithfully for several years, for about nine years, and lo and behold... (laughs) he made the same mistake. He thought, well, the Babylonians, they, they really were very concerned with other nations, bigger nations like Egypt, gave them trouble all the time. And Zedekiah thought he could get away with discontinuing tribute money. And uh, that time Nebuchadnezzar sent his army down and he said, hey, th- I've had it. I've had it with these Jews. They won't cooperate. This time we just clean house. And that's why in 587, Nebuchadnezzar's army simply destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple. That's the story we just read from Chronicles, the absolute end of the affair. 
And then there wasn't anybody left except the crippled and the very aged and Jeremiah who said, who was given the choice of going to Egypt, going to Babylon, and he would have been a pampered favorite of the Chaldean people because he, he kept telling Zedekiah, surrender, surrender, surrender. But he said, no, these people need me too. And so this, these, uh, the people who were left behind were left behind in this rubble condition. Jerusalem looked like a landfill for all these years, you see. And uh, they didn't need a governor anymore. There just was no viable political order anymore. And that's 587, which brings us to the Zedekiah chapter. Now you're wondering what Shealtiel and Zerubbabel are doing there. Well, come back tomorrow and I'll tell you. Okay? All right? Because that's where the uh, marvelous mercy and grace of God is so evidently seen in, in the continuation of this Davidic line. But that awaits uh, a little later uh, chapter in the book of Ze Zechariah. Okay. Um, I would like to... Uh, just reflect a little bit on verses 5 and 6, which I think is the heart of the uh, prophecy that is here presented. Because there, Zechariah brings the word of the Lord which so starkly contrasts the, the mortality of humans or dying men and the undying word the prophetic word. Let's read it again, verses 5 and 6. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? So let's first look at the first part of that contrast, dying men. Where are your forefathers now? Well, they're dead and gone. Uh, Zechariah's task, prim primary task, that is the immediate job he had to do, was to encourage the rebuilding of the temple, which had been destroyed in 587. And now this is 520. So this is, um, you know, 67 years later, okay? So the temple has been destroyed for 67 years. And uh, Cyrus's decree had permitted the, some exiles to go back and to rebuild the temple. And so that's the major task. Incidentally, Haggai, the two chapters of that short book of Haggai, concentrate almost solely on encouraging the people to rebuild the temple. Um, he calls to mind in the process uh, former days when the forefathers refused to listen to God's prophetic word and their disobedience resulted in captivity. And they're dead and gone now, and they did not fulfill in their lives the purpose to which God had called them. And he uses this, therefore, by way of warning to the people of his time not to make the same mistake. In the process, he says, where are your forefathers? Well, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Everybody knows the answer. They're gone. Even the prophets are gone. That's interesting. The prophets which had proclaimed God's word to those forefathers, they are also gone. 
um, whether people accepted God's word and, and, and lived by it as the faithful prophets and a remnant did or rejected God's word and suffered its consequences uh, they're all dead and gone now what Zechariah is saying is whether they were faithful or unfaithful the most important factor in their lives was what did they do with the prophetic word that they heard in their time you see the people thought they had a lot of things to do in Zechariah's time. Remember, they're immigrants. They're exiles coming back to Judea and Jerusalem, which was in an awful condition, needed a lot of rebuilding. And they had to uh, replant their vineyards. They had to rebuild their um, shoe repair shops, <laughs> sandal repair shops, and uh, rebuild their herds and their houses, and they thought that they had a lot of these things to do. And Zechariah, therefore, reminds them that the word from God was to rebuild the temple, to put first things first. Now, this is already 520, and those of you who find it easy to think in terms of dates and uh, elapsed time, uh, remember that we said they came back in 537, in 539, the decree is issued, and of course, it took a while to build up the supplies and see how many people they could get together, and they got about 40,000 together finally, and they make the trek back to Jerusalem. Uh, so what's happening from 537 to 520, 17 years? Well, if you check out that history, you soon discover that as soon as they came back, they seemed to have a great zeal for rebuilding the temple because that's what the emperor had permitted them to do. And they laid the, what do they call, footings? If you're in construction, you can help me with that. They laid the foundational elements, the footings, and then the people started thinking, well, we've got to get things going on our own too. Our own jobs, our own professions. We've got to get settled here. And as a result, they lost their zeal for the temple building, and they went and sought their own efforts Haggai is much more specific on this. And the temple literally was a hole in the ground for 16 years. So in 520, Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai's prophecy is also 520, second year of Darius, king of, uh, of Persia. These two prophets were successful in encouraging the people. Of course, again, they had to learn a tough lesson because after about 10 years of getting along rather well, then the crops weren't good anymore and the cattle weren't producing uh, calves uh, uh, very well and things, recession had set in. And if you read Haggai, recession has a way of waking us to our sense of dependency, doesn't it? If you read Haggai, Haggai said, well, you know, what do you expect? What do you expect? You can't expect to prosper in your own life while the temple is simply a hole in the ground. And the worship of God it has not been reestablished. The center of our covenant life, the place that symbolized the presence of God among us, is neglected while you pursue your own. Haggai says, you're building houses with sealed cedars. 
your sealed houses, which suggest, you know, these tri-levels with a family room uh, uh, with uh, cedars of Lebanon that should have been used as timbers for, for the structure of the temple. They're using it in their own home. They were these sealed houses, that is, weatherproof houses, good solid homes for themselves, while my house lies in ruin, says the Lord, through Haggai now. Haggai, a contemporary of Zechariah. <coughs> so the word of the Lord at this time was, rebuild my temple. And of course, to neglect that would be to miss the one opportunity to make a difference for God's kingdom. And God's kingdom, of course, is being built in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. So as the forefathers missed their opportunity to participate in the grand purpose of God to save the world by being his faithful people through whom the Messiah should come, now Zechariah says, don't make the same mistake. Don't get so involved in your day-to-day -day activities that you miss the one big opportunity that you have in your short existence on planet Earth. Which means that uh, we have no problem applying this to us today, do we? Now, we don't lift anything out of the Old Testament and then jump into 1991, 1995, if you have it straight now, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, but what we do is we interpret everything in the Old Testament in this historic, redemptive way so that we see it through the cross. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament revelation, see. These people were called to be faithful, to rebuild the temple, the worship of the Lord, the reestablishment of the covenant community, so that a faithful people could be the agents through whom the Savior of the world would come. But now, we stand in relationship to that same cross, only we look back, don't we? We don't look ahead like they did. But we understand that these, the purpose for which these people existed was really to anticipate the Savior so the purpose for which we exist is really to proclaim the Savior who has already come. So we really stand in a similar relationship to the Lord, namely, called to be his covenant faithful people in our time, like they were called to be God's faithful covenant people in their time. And so the, the passage applies so well. I mean, one could, one could say, where are the past generations? who have produced us. Where are the grand folks and the great-grandparents? My parents, my grandparents. Well, that's a rhetorical question. They're gone. They're gone. And the old preachers, the prophetic voice, that preach to these former generations, do they live forever? No. But God's Word applied to them and to us and it is a word which lives and abides forever. I mean, this is the kind of a message that calls us to fidelity in our own time, doesn't it? Uh, think of the millions who once existed. Maybe we can get that closer to home. Think of the hundreds and thousands who met for retreats on this campus. I don't know how old this campus is. Maybe it would help to make this kind of an application. But really, folks, there's probably not a seat in this auditorium where somebody 
now dead, has not once sat. And I'm very sure that's true of where I stand. People who once heard the word proclaimed here or stood here proclaiming that word are dead and gone. Now, what was really important about their time? How much money they made? How successful they were? How much prestige they enjoyed? How much uh, vacation time they, they could expend? Why no? The really important thing for them, this generation that has produced us, these generations that produced us, was what they did with this word that abides forever. And their present condition has now been det already determined, not on the basis of their ch achievements in life, whether they went to college or didn't, or technical school or didn't, whether they had three children or seven children or never married, that wasn't the major issue that determined their present fate, but their response to the living word. And that's true for the old preachers who stood here and for the former generations who may have sat there. You see how the prophetic perspective helps us to understand our responsibility before the Lord in every age. Of course the prophets apply for today because they proclaim the word that applies today. But that word can fully be understood only in terms of Jesus. It wouldn't have been important at all for them to build this worship center called a temple if it weren't for the fact that the Heavenly Father had a design in mind to bring forth Him whom all the temple ceremony anticipated and symbolized. Every lamb slain, morning and evening sacrifice, every day of the year reminded them that there was to come the shedding of a perfect blood which would be sufficient to cover the sins of all who would ever trust in Jesus. And so that was their, their calling for purposeful living in their time. And the most important decision, really, the only decision that finally makes a difference was what they did with the word. So Zechariah says, your forefathers made the biggest blunder humans can make in life, searching after a thousand other interests in life in their little existence on planet Earth and neglected the one big thing that could have made their life purposeful for eternity. Not just in terms of saving their own souls, but being an agent of God's fulfillment of his purposes in life, anticipating the culmination of his work of redemption in Jesus. And the same thing is true for us. I think we need the prophetic word today so, so very, very strongly because we live in an age of frantic uh, uh, pursuit of all sorts of interests which uh, has resulted in uh, more you know, anxiety and nervous breakdowns than probably any other age has ever had. Now, I think there are some good things worth worrying about. And I'll mention that after a little bit. But most of our anxiety, most of our worry, most of our nervous conditions and nervous breakdowns is a result of making far too important, which is of relatively less important, 
compared to our response to the living Word of God, to the Word of God. We, we, have, we have anxiety because friends desert us or because people don't accept us or we have reverses in business or our professions aren't uh, maturing like we should like to see them or if we're successful, we're not as successful as our brother-in-law or sister-in-law or somebody else with whom we compare ourselves. Um, we have much, but we want more. Uh, we're not a, we, are, we have health problems. And uh, while these are, of course, significant factors in, in life, uh, we, we are troubled because we accord these dimensions of our existence a far too important place. It's the very same thing over which the world has nervous breakdowns. <laughs> and some of the evidence is that the church is becoming too much like the world is because the same concerns which trouble the world is what now seems to be troubling the church. And we have the same results as a, matter, as a, as a consequence. If only we could learn to consign all of these other factors in life to their appropriate... I'm not saying they're not important, whether you have friends or you're successful in business or the like, but their appropriate relative level of importance compared to what we do with the living Word of God. Now, uh, I said there are some things worth worrying about. The church ought to worry about a lost world. We should, we should have nervous breakdowns over the appalling rejection of the gospel. We should have, we live such a short time and then we die. And the most important relationship is our relationship to God's word, all other interests should be secondary. Now I guess I'm getting older, like Roger, Roger said last night. And I guess the older we get, the more we're conscious of the passage of time. I looked at these little children running around the campus <laughs> And I remember speaking at a conference way back. No, I was really chairman of the conference and not a speaker. 1962, Cedar Lake Bible Conference, a week family conference, Cedar Lake, Indiana. Uh, the Christian Reformed Churches of the Chicago area have had a conference there for about 55 years. I've been there seven times, four times on the staff and twice as in, more recently as a speaker like I am here. And in those early times, way back in the 60s, my little children were running around. And now they're daddies and mommies. And I'm grandpa. <laughs> Eleven times. And so, and I say to myself, I said to my wife yesterday, where's it all gone? And you get a little depressed, you know, because those precious times will flit away. So you young parents and, and you grandparents uh, enjoy them while they're there. But in the final analysis, the really important thing is what the conferees back in 62, many of whom are dead and gone, and the conferees, conferees here do with the living word 
and what the little children who are now in their 30s and parents, my own, are doing with the living word and what our children are going to do with the living word. But uh, before we... Here we go again. Before we close out this... uh, Well, I lied, I guess. I promised you had finished chapter 1 today. Um, We have to ask one more question. We haven't done justice to this little passage yet, this first prophecy. What is this that abides while human beings come and go? Now, we've called it God's Word. What is it in relationship to which the most important decisions in human life are made? What is it that abides while human beings decay? What is it that makes this short existence on this lesser planet called Earth really significant, really important? Well, to begin with, as we've implied, it includes the prophetic utterances. That's the word of the Lord, too. The prophets called Israel to repent again and again and again. Uh, The prophets said, uh, thus saith the Lord, and the people said, oh, you don't care what God has to say. The priest said, thou shalt, and the people said, we won't. That's essentially the history of rebellious Israel, isn't it? That was God's word, the prophetic utterances. And as we said, Zechariah says, take a lesson. That word caught up to the people. Did you catch that? Did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? That word in Hebrew means catch up with them. Didn't it prove true Didn't in their, in their existence? Didn't it prove true that their disobedience would result in tragedy? And of course, for the faithful remnant, didn't it prove true that it resulted in God's redemption? Not one jot or one tittle of that law would pass away till all be fulfilled. But the word of the Lord goes further than that. We said that everything, remember the chart, that we understand in the Old Testament finally has to focus on Jesus or else we don't really understand it. So in further revelational light, the heart of the gospel is, uh, is, is seen. When we say that the relationship to the Word is the most, relation, most important relationship in all of life, preeminently that means in the total framework of biblical revelation that one's revelation to, re, relationship to Jesus is the all-important and decisive uh, revela- uh, relationship in this world. So when Zechariah says, Remember what your forefathers did with the word that the prophets proclaimed. What are you going to do with this word? For us in New Testament revelational life, it means what are you going to do with Jesus? The living word for whom the written word simply exists to reveal. That's what this Bible is for, was given us for, to reveal Jesus. The living word, he is the theme, he's the peak revelational event in the written word of God. 
And so that former generation we talked about that produced us, the most important decision they made was the relationship to Jesus, the living word, the fulfillment and culmination of the written word of the Bible. So the really important question for them and for us is, what have you done about Jesus? Everything else is temporal and passing. As the scripture itself says, yes, our fathers are gone. Even the preachers, the old preachers are gone. But Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He abides. And so we live in a very different age, but uh, the application of the truth is the same. We live in a modern time, and there are reasons for real concern. Um, hideous military instruments of destruction, literally uh, capable of wiping off uh, all life on, on this planet, uh, fivefold, I understand, if all, if all thermonuclear uh, explosives were, were fired, uh, it would simply uh, terminate life as we know it on planet Earth. I don't think God will allow that. So there, there are things, there are recessions, there are fatal illnesses. Uh, uh, there's a possibility of uh, personal uh, disaster and disappointment. But the Christian uh, should be able to review all of this without dread, uh, without a sense of insecurity, uh, because we know that there's a, a rock foundation which abides and his name is Jesus so whatever comes we can count you can count on one unchanging reality namely our Lord Jesus Christ and so let me close this this morning with a admonition this more sounds more like a, a sermon but I sort of felt one coming on to be honest with you but uh, <laughs> Uh, than, than, a, than a sort of a lecture Bible study, but uh, really that's, there's place for this. What is our response? Well, you know, the response of Zechariah's day in our day is accept that word. Yield wholly to that word, which means yield wholly to Jesus so that he may transform us by his love and his grace and his holiness and his mercy so that we can think of a generation now gone and say, we know for certain that those who laid hold on the rock foundation called Jesus are secure for eternity. And the same thing is true for us today. In this brief moment of our lives, while the word of God is, is offered to us, uh, so often there are a thousand interests that uh, try to distract us and draw us away. And I sometimes think that uh, we, we fight and argue over some lesser things even in the company of the church, don't we? And it draws our attention away from Jesus and, and he is not lifted up and glorified like he should among us. So in the transiency of all life, let none of us here fail to lay hold on him who abides forever. Hold fast to that word. Let go of everything else if you have to. Friends, relatives, jobs. Some jobs dishonor Jesus, you know. In this time of, of unrest in our world, let's make sure we hold fast to our Lord. He is the eternal in time. 
the abiding one in the shifting sands of human reality. Like Peter, when Jesus said, everybody seems to forsake me, are you going to too? And Peter said, Lord, we, we don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> to whom shall we go but to you? You have the words of eternal life. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah said, a voice said, cry. What shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and the goodliness of the flesh is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And now we can echo in the advantage of New Testament revelational light confidently that the Christ of the gospel is the living word who abides forever. How tragic, how eternally tragic if we grasped after the fading and the temporal and the dying and have to eternally regret failing to lay hold of him who abides forever. Let us pray. Lord our God, your word is so filled, full of rich truth, and we thank you that we can see this truth in its fullest flower as revealed in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the living Lord, the living word. And we pray that our, uh, we, with our children and our grandchildren, may be able to see through uh, the temptation of draw, having our attention drawn to so many peripheral things in this life. But let us lay hold of him who abides forever, him who is the same, for our forefathers yesterday, for us today, and the, come, the generations to see, succeed us tomorrow. May we honor you in all that we do as we look into your word. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.